You are listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week, we continue our Sunday morning series on Jesus' statements about himself with a series we are calling, I Am. With today's message, here's Connections Pastor Caleb Carmichael. What is a good life to you? If you were to look at someone and see their life and say, oh, they are living the life, how would you describe that? Maybe for you it's enough money to never work again, that you could travel the world, sit on the beach, sit in the mountains, never have to worry about finances again. Maybe for you it's success in your field, it's recognition for your work, it's the corner office or the title of the promotion that you've worked so hard for. Maybe it's relationships. You just long to have deep friendships, deep family relationships. Maybe you long for a spouse or a family. Or maybe you've experienced broken relationships, and if those things could just be restored, that would be the good life. Maybe for you it's power. Power to get things done. To be the person other people come to for answers. Maybe it's to be able to call the shots or to say that you are in charge. Or maybe it's not your own direct power. Maybe for you the good life is political power. It's when your party is in charge and they're making the decisions in our government or they're not and you say, if only they were, that would be the good life. Maybe it's for you, it's comfort. If you could take all of the problems away, have a life filled with ease, nothing that pushed you outside of your comfort zones, that would be the good life. Or maybe it's control. If you could just make it to where you always knew what was coming, where there were no surprises, where everyone acted the way that you think they should act, and every situation worked out the way you think it should work out, that would be the dream. That would be the good life. And if I were to be completely honest with you, that my idea of the good life is a combination of all of those things. See, I would love to be independently wealthy, where I could experience the best things that life has to offer, the best food, the best vacations, all of these things. But, but I also know that I really value relationships and friendships and family. And so I need to be wealthy enough that not only can I do those things, I can bring all of my friends and family along with me. Right? And, and at the same time, um, I, I want my kids, I don't want them to be spoiled. And so I want them to understand the value of hard work. And, and I can look back on my life and see how difficult circumstances have shaped me. And so I want that for them, but I don't really want them to have to go through the difficult stuff. I just want them to learn the lessons. And, and at the same time, like while I'm living this extravagant life, I can also realize that sometimes the simple moments of my life are the best moments. And so I want to live this extravagant life sometimes and this really simple life other times. And and at the same time, I want my kids to listen to exactly what I say and grow up to be independent somehow. And I could just keep going on and on and on. And we realize how impossible this is, that, that even my own list contradicts themselves. And I think even if I were to get everything that I wanted, I have a hunch that deep down I still wouldn't be satisfied. And yet, Jesus offers us a satisfying life. In John 10, he says that he came that we may have life and have it abundantly. And that word abundantly means extraordinary, remarkable, or I like this definition, going beyond what is necessary. That Jesus came not just so that we can live, but that we can have a life beyond what is necessary, a life overflowing with joy and meaning, and purpose. The question is, how do we find that life? And so I wonder what you would say to the question, what is the good life? 
What is beyond what is necessary? Or, or maybe some questions you could ask yourself. If you were being honest, you could fill in these in. If I could just do blank, then I would be happy. If I could just do that item on my bucket list, if I could just graduate high school or graduate college, if, if I could just retire, right? if I could just achieve this thing that I've been working for, when I get there, then I'll be happy. Maybe it's if I could just have. If I could just have the house that I saw on HGTV, if I could just have the car, if I could just have the certain balance in my 401k, if I could just have the right friends or the right family, then, then I would be happy. Or maybe it's if I could just be, if I could just be successful, if I could just be popular, if I could be wealthy, if I could be the boss, if I could be in control, if I could be respected or admired, maybe you, for you, it's if other people think highly of me, then I could be happy. But what if Jesus has the ultimate answer to what the good life is? And what if it isn't found in what we do? It isn't found in what we have or what we are or what others think of us. What if the good life isn't even a place that we can arrive at or a set of circumstances that we can manufacture? What if it is something much more simple? So with that in mind, I'd invite you to open up your copy of Scripture to John chapter 10. If you don't have your own copy of Scripture, there's some in the back of the room by the the carts, by the doors. Feel free to pick one of those up. It's our gift to you today. You can also follow along in the Church Center app or the YouVersion Bible app. All of these verses will be there as well. We're picking up in John chapter 10 in the middle of this series, looking at the I am statements of Jesus. Moments when Jesus would be speaking and he would describe himself. I am this. And our passage today is coming out of John chapter 9 where Jesus has just healed a man who was born blind. He's been blind his entire life and then Jesus gives him his sight. And the spiritual leaders of the day, they don't don't know how this can be. They don't know what to do with this. They're they're confused about, who is this man who can can heal people? What's going on here? And Jesus, because he's this brilliant teacher, not only does he use this miracle to change this man's life, he uses it as an object lesson for the spiritual leaders right in this exact moment. See, this man who was born blind, he gets his sight. So all of a sudden, he can see physically. But what we also notice about this man is he begins to see spiritually. He begins to see Jesus for who he is, that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, the Savior. And yet the religious leaders, the ones who are supposed to be able to see this coming, the ones who are supposed to have this spiritual sight, they miss it and they become spiritually blind. And so as they're confused about what's going on, as they're talking with Jesus, Jesus gives them an analogy to try to help them understand. And we pick that up in John chapter 10, verse 1. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them but they did not understand what he was saying to them. They don't, they don't get it. He's just healed this man, and they're trying to figure out how he can do it. And all of a sudden, he starts talking about sheep and shepherds and sheepfolds. And they're like, ah, what are you talking about, Jesus? And maybe you're here, too, going, I, <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about, Jesus. And so what Jesus is using, he's using this word picture, a familiar thing for the people of this time that, that would have understood shepherding, and they would have understood sheep, they would have understood sheepfold. And so in, in the center of the town... 
There would have been this thing called the sheepfold where, where the shepherds could bring their flocks in. Different shepherds with different flocks where they could come into town, they could gather supplies, they could rest and recover, and they could bring their sheep into the sheepfold where someone would watch them for them while they, while they were away. And so it would be all these sheep mixed together, all of these herds mixed together, and then when the shepherd was ready to go back out to pasture, to lead his sheep back out to the land where they could graze, he would come into the sheepfold and he would start calling for his sheep. He'd call them even by name and they would recognize the voice of their shepherd. They would hear him, they would turn, and they'd begin to follow him out of the sheepfold, out into the pasture, out into the wilderness, out into the land where they could graze, where they could experience for a sheep the good life. And what we'll see in a few weeks is, is how Jesus in these passages is going to call himself the good shepherd. And we're, we're not going to focus on that today. That'll, that'll be coming. That's another I am statement. But he is the one who calls these sheep by name. He, they, he is the one that when they hear his voice, they want to follow him. We'll see how he's a shepherd who's willing to lay down his life to protect his sheep. And then as he leads them out into pasture, there would be a, another enclosure, a sheep pen, much smaller much more primitive, maybe even just some rocks making a, a small wall with a, with a small door that led in and out. And what that would be used for is when the sheep were out in pasture, it could be the place where they could come in at night, where they could rest, they could sleep, and where the shepherd would lay in front of the door, becoming the door itself to the sheep pen. And they could rest easy knowing that their shepherd was there to, to guide them, to protect them, to keep them safe. And then during the day, they could go out to pasture. They could graze. They could, they could fill themselves up. They could experience this more than necessary life. And they could do so carefree because they knew that their shepherd was there, that he was watching over, and that he was protecting. And so Jesus continues with this different focus in verse 7 of John chapter 10. Jesus again said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. That all who came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly, more than necessary. And so Jesus here is honing in on something specific about who he is. In our metaphor, we're now out in the pasture where we're away from everything. In the single pen where the shepherd would guard the entrance, the pen where the sheep could come in and out and find safety and rest. They could go out and find food where they're protected and secure. And Jesus is saying in this analogy, I am the door. The door to the sheep. That everyone who's come before me, and he's calling out those blind spiritual leaders of his time, they thought they were good shepherds. They were acting like shepherds. He's referencing Ezekiel 34 where these shepherds, the spiritual leaders, were supposed to take care of the flock. But they only cared about themselves. They only cared about their own needs. They didn't take care of the sheep. And that they thought in their blindness that they knew the way to good pasture. They thought they knew the way to the good life. But they were blind. And they didn't know the way. And Jesus is saying, I am the way. That I am the door. That if you are a sheep and you want to go out and you want to find this abundant life, that you have to go through me. Jesus says you enter into the good life through me. He says the thief, we read that as Satan, we read it as our, our spiritual enemies, which is true. And Jesus is also calling out these spiritual leaders. He says they're coming to steal and to kill and to destroy and they, they might look like they're leading you somewhere good. They might look like they're leading you to pasture. And it might look like it's good, but their path is only going to lead to death and destruction and heartbreak. It's not going to lead to life. But Jesus says, I've come that they can have life, this overflowing, 
abundant life, and you find it by entering through the door. Jesus says, through me. And I want to pause because, because if you're like me and maybe you've grown up in church or you've been a Christian for a long time, it's easy for us to miss the significance of this. Because I think our tendency is to read this as, okay, this is how I get to heaven one day. Like, I trust in Jesus, I enter through the door, and then, like, it's up to me, and then one day I get to go to heaven where everything's good and I can find that pasture that he's talking about. But I don't want to miss this. I don't want to miss this. That that everlasting life that we're promised, that like Joe talked about here, when, when we trust in Jesus because of what he did on the cross, because of his body that was broken, his blood that was spilled, that we can have life with him, That life isn't just one day, that it starts today. That everlasting life begins the moment that you trust in Jesus, and it never ends. So this isn't just about deciding to follow Jesus and then bury your head in the sand and wait until you get to go to heaven one day. No, Jesus offers us abundant life here and now. And Jesus teaches about this in so many different places, but one of the most famous is what we call the Sermon on the Mount. That Matthew records for us the Sermon on the Mount, and and what this is, is Jesus is beginning his public ministry. And he's just come out of a season where he's been tempted in the wilderness, that he goes out into the wilderness where he's completely dependent upon his heavenly Father, and he learns this obedience. And then he comes out of that testing and that, that temptation period, and he comes out and he begins this ministry, and he begins healing people, miraculous, and he begins teaching. And Matthew says what Jesus begins teaching is the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom of heaven. And he records this collection of teachings called the Sermon on the Mount. And in the middle of this sermon, the good news of the kingdom, Matthew records Jesus saying this. He says, enter by the narrow gate. Enter into this kingdom. Enter into the good life by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. And for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Again, don't check out if you grew up in church because we read this and we hear, okay, wide is the path to hell and narrow is the path to heaven, but I trusted Jesus a long time ago, so this doesn't apply to me. But notice there's a gate and a path. It's a narrow gate. And then the way, the path you have to take, the path that is your life, is hard. That it's not just about passing through a gate, it's a path that you're following. The easy way The wide way, the world's way, will appear easier. It will appear better. It will appear to be good, and yet it leads to destruction. The way to life, Jesus says, it will be hard. You think, but but Jesus. Jesus, isn't the good life a life of ease? Isn't the good life a life without difficulty, without problems, without pain? Isn't the good life a life that goes exactly the way that I want it to go? And Jesus says, no, that if you want to find life, it's a narrow path, and it will cost you something. He says this in Matthew chapter 16. He told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. See, this is the paradox of following Jesus, that he offers us abundant life, and yet we have to lose our life. Or maybe our idea of what the good life is in order to find this real life. And this feels backwards and upside down and it might not make sense. But Jesus is saying that you have to die. You have to die to your independence, to your pride, 
to your need for control, to your ideas of doing or having or being someone because that's what's going to make you happen. You have to die to those things, and when you do, then you will find life. And this is what makes that narrow path difficult. It's what makes it hard, is are we willing to let go of what we think will bring us life to die to that in order to find true life? And so what is the good life? You were to answer that question, what is the good life? And what if it had nothing to do with our circumstances, but everything to do with our surrender and our trust and our dependence on Jesus? A few weeks ago, Joe referenced an author named Ted Wiesty who, who wrote a book about the nation of Israel walking through the wilderness. And he talks about how they learned, had to learn how to trust God in the wilderness because for them, they were looking forward to this promised land. This land that God had promised, this land of plenty, and they were looking forward to it thinking, when we arrive there, then everything's going to be okay. That is where we'll find the good life. But they had missed what was going on right around them in the wilderness. Ted Weesey says this, he says, the journey of faith is about deepening our dependence on him. Why? Because dependence is the promised land. Hear that clearly. A life of dependence is the truest, most real hope in our lives. That our hope is in him, not some location outside of difficulty. That dependence is the promised land. Or to say it another way, dependence is the good life. Because our hope isn't a place, it's a person. Our hope isn't in a bank account balance, a more secure job, or our political party gaining power. Our hope isn't in our country or our state. Our hope isn't in a beach vacation. Our hope isn't in a life of ease and comfort. Our hope isn't things going exactly the way that we had hoped or that we had planned. Our hope isn't in our understanding of the way the world works. Our hope isn't a place. It's not something that we arrive at, and it's not something we escape to. Our hope is someone. It's someone we enjoy here and now, and we do so through dependence through trust. So we've heard a little bit from Jesus about what this good news of the kingdom and how we find this good life, but I'd invite you now to turn in your copy of scripture to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 is the beginning of this Sermon on the Mount, the beginning of Jesus' teaching about the good news of this kingdom. And so we skipped ahead earlier to Matthew 7, we talked about how we find this good life, but Matthew 5 is going to describe what this good life looks like. He's going to paint a picture of what the good life might look like. So in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this beginning in verse 2. He said, he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus is describing this good life. And he's saying, blessed are these people. And that word blessed often gets translated happy. And I think that's a good definition, but I think maybe a better one would be the word joyful. 
Because happy is dependent upon our circumstances, but we can experience joy regardless of our circumstances. So Jesus is saying, blessed are those, happy are those, joyful are those, or or maybe in our context, these are the people who are experiencing the good life. (laughs) There's only one problem with that, is this list from Jesus isn't at all how I would describe the good life. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom. Poor in spirit. When you're poor in spirit, Jesus says you're experiencing the good life. But what what does that mean? If you're poor, you're lacking resources. There's something that you don't have. And the thing that you don't have is spirit, is vitality, is life, is power. We know what it means when someone is spirited. We know what it means when someone's spirit has been broken. And he says, when your spirit has been broken, when you're poor in spirit, when you're without power, without spiritual power or physical power, without the power to influence the world around you, without the power to be in control, those people, the powerless, they are living the good life. You think, what? Because theirs is the kingdom. You say that? No way. Our worldly kingdoms say that the way to the good life is through power, it's through my own power, through my own influence, my own ability to, to create change. Right? Power is what comes from political parties being in command. It's powers comes through deception and manipulation. It comes through bribery and backroom deals. It comes by positioning myself just right so that I can be in control, but not in Jesus' kingdom. Not in this kingdom. He says it's when you realize that you are without power. That's the good life. Why? Because when you're powerless, you are dependent. And dependence is the promised land. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Jesus is saying when you are mourning, when you are experiencing loss, when your heart is broken, that you can experience the good life. Why? Because you are in a place of dependence, and dependence is the promised land. Blessed are the meek. Another word for that could be humble. Blessed are the humble. You're experiencing the good life when you're humble, but but, but the problem is, how do you become humble? You have to be humiliated. Jesus says, when you are humiliated, you're experiencing the good life. Why? Because in that moment, you're dependent, and dependence is the promised land. That Jesus, talking about life and his kingdom, this good life, this overflowing, abundant, more than necessary life, is found in perhaps the places we least expect it. That Jesus says we can find this abundant life in the best moments, we can find it in the mundane moments, the boring moments, and we can find it in the worst moments because our hope isn't in a place, it's in a person, and his name is Jesus And the good news of the kingdom is that God is with us. That we have the presence of God with us every moment of every day. And where he is, there's life. And we can come in and out and find pasture. That we can come in and rest in that sheep pen knowing that our shepherd is watching over us. Knowing that we are safe. And how I might define safe is probably different from how Jesus defines safe. Because I define safe as nothing bad happens. But Jesus defines safe as, even when bad things happen, I am with you always. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. 
That when I'm with Jesus, I can come out and I can go about my day and I can find pasture. I can go in and out and I can find life. And I can do that carefree knowing that my shepherd is there to watch over me, to lead me and to guide me. And that the weight of the world isn't on my shoulders. That I don't have to have it all figured out because I can trust in my shepherd. Jesus is the good life. And it's found in dependence upon him. And now I'm, I'm not naive, and I know that in this room there are people who are walking through some incredibly difficult things. I, I know that there is severe pain and loss and hurt. I know that there's anger and resentment towards God. And I know for me to stand up here on this stage and say, the good life is just Jesus, <laughs> can feel like a cheesy, churchy, cop-out answer. I get that. The end of John 10, we see Jesus continue this, this analogy where he's talking about how he's the door and how he's the good shepherd. And at the end, the people still don't know what to do with what Jesus is saying. And they're, they're kind of arguing among themselves, like, I, I don't know about this. And they say this. It says, the Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, he is demon-possessed and he's raving mad. He's insane. He's crazy. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? They don't know what to do. This sounds crazy. And maybe you're here, and if you were being honest, maybe, maybe you wouldn't say it out loud, but, but you feel like this is crazy. You think, really? Like, the good life is, is that? It's just Jesus? Like, the good life is dependence and not independence? Like, the good life is being powerless. It's in humiliation. It's in making peace with my enemies. The, the good life is being persecuted and hated and lied about. And, and then when all that's happening, I'm, I'm, I'm still being merciful to them. Like, that's the good life? Like, come on. Like, that might sound good in church, Jesus, but, but come on, that's not the good life. That's insane. Why listen to him? But what if, what if Jesus was right? What if all the ways that I've spent my life trying to live independently and all the ways that you've spent yours trying to live on your own have only brought pain and destruction and death? And what if instead there was a way to this abundant life, this life beyond what is necessary, into this extravagant life? And what if it isn't found in money or power or control? And what if the longings that we have for significance and security and relationships, that those things were good, that God placed them there for a reason, but yet so often we turn and we think we can find them somewhere else when we're calling the shots and we're in control? What if dependence really is the good life? And what if there was love and peace, real peace, and joy to be found in the presence of Jesus? And what if it was on offer to us every single moment of every single day? What if daily, moment-by-moment -moment dependence on Jesus was the door to the good life? And if you're sitting here hearing that, and, and maybe you're just a little bit hopeful, 
Maybe, maybe even excited. And you're thinking, maybe, maybe there actually is more than I've imagined to what it means to follow Jesus. And then there's this other part of you that says, yeah, that sounds awesome. I can, I can taste it. I can feel it. I want that. And yet, I don't want to risk being let down. Because maybe for you, you've, you've tried praying or you've tried coming to church or you've tried reading your Bible and it, and it didn't maybe work the way that you had hoped it would. And maybe, maybe you're just so scared to be vulnerable, to be real. Like we sing these songs about God being a good God, but you're worried that if he, if he really knew what was going on in your heart and your mind, or if he really knew who you were, that, that maybe he couldn't love you. Maybe you're scared to, to really trust. And so maybe you think it's just better to, to kind of live in this middle ground where I'm kind of half awake, half asleep. Like I know God's there and I know he, he loves me, but, but I don't want to risk being completely vulnerable with him. Because to fully open up and to fully trust, to fully let go and be completely dependent means you are risking being let down and you are risking being disappointed and you are risking being hurt. And if that's you, I'd invite you to lean in, to trust, to give up, maybe let go just of a little bit of your independence And lean into the idea that the good life isn't found in the things that maybe you've hoped for, but it's found in dependence upon Jesus. Because this is what makes that narrow gate and hard path difficult. It isn't that it's difficult just for difficulty's sake. No, it's it's difficult because it's just so hard to let go. To let go of our expectations, of our need for control, of our own plans of our own understanding about how life is supposed to work and go. Because when we do that, we're completely vulnerable, completely dependent. But when we can, it's when we get a taste of the good life. So how do we do do this? How do we live a life of dependence? There's a million different ways and a million different things we can do. And I'd, I'd love to have a longer conversation with you about what it means to follow Jesus. I'd love to sit down with you and talk about spiritual practices, things like prayer and reading scripture, things like silence and solitude, about about fasting. I'd love to talk to you about what a life of becoming more aware of God's presence in the day-to-day moments of of life looks like. I'd love to grab a cup of coffee with you or or meet with you here at our offices, and I know our entire shepherding team would love to do the same. That's an an open invitation. But as a warning, if, if you think sitting here and thinking, okay, well, if I'll just do the right things enough, if I say the right prayers or read my Bible enough, then I'll have this figured out and my life will be easy. <laughs> if we think you, there's a formula that you can figure out to where all of a sudden you can be back in control and you're living independently, I want to warn you that's missing it as well. Or as Thomas Keating says, our expectations, if we enter into this spiritual life, of becoming paragons of piety, great contemplatives, attaining higher spaces of consciousness, all subtly aimed at carrying us beyond the daily troubles of ordinary life. If we think we're going to get beyond that, he says, this is not the way into the kingdom. Rather, the kingdom consists in finding God, finding God in the middle of our disappointments, our failures, our problems, and even in our inability to rid ourselves of our vices. That dependence is the promised land. But as a starting point, I'd, I'd like to invite you to participate in an exercise, something that I've found helpful in my own life, and, and I hope that you do as well. And, and for me, this all begins with, if I, if I want to find God, I have to slow down. And it's not because that finding God is difficult. 
He's always speaking. He's always moving. He's always working in my lives. My problem is I'm often too busy and distracted in too big of a hurry to notice. And so I simply have to begin by slowing down. And so what I'll do is I, as I start my day or throughout the day is I'll, I'll stop and I'll begin taking a few deep breaths and I'll, I'll hold my hands out like this. And there's nothing magic about holding my hands out like this. Um, but there is something about connecting our physical bodies with, with our spiritual, connecting the heart, mind, and body. So I'll hold my hands out. And what I'm trying to do in this moment is, is two things. One, I'm trying to, to remind myself that I'm, I'm letting go. <laughs> letting go of my need for control. Letting go from my ideas of what the good life is. Letting go of, of all of the things, my expectations. And at the same time, I'm sitting here open-handed, ready to, to hear something from the Lord, ready for him to speak to me, ready to receive. And so, so I'll sit here with my hands open, and, I, and I'll just pray. And it's a pretty simple prayer. I'll take a deep breath in. And then as I breathe out, I'll just remind myself that, God, you're here. I'll take another deep breath. I'll remind myself, God, you're, you're with me. And I'll take another deep breath. And God, I need you. And I'll just repeat that over and over and over again. Sometimes I'll say different phrases depending on the season. But I'll try to start my day with that as a reminder that, that God's with me today. That he's with me here. And that I need him. And I'll, I'll try to do that throughout the day. As I'm driving in the car, I, I won't hold my hands out, uh, tending to, um, <laughs> but I'll remind myself that, that God's with me here and that I need him there. As I'm about to step into a meeting, I'll remind myself that, that God is here and he's with me and that I need him. As, as I'm sitting down to dinner with my family, in the back of my mind, I won't say it out loud, but in the back of my mind, I'm reminding myself that God is here and that he's with me and that I need him. And in every moment and of every day, I'll bring myself back to the, the reality that the good news of the kingdom is that God is with us. But how often am I aware of it? And so I try to remind myself that God is here and that he's with me and that I'm dependent upon him, that I need him. And what I found and what I'm continuing to find is that Jesus was right. That he is the door to this abundant life, this life that is beyond what is necessary, extraordinary, overflowing life. And the question isn't, was Jesus right? Does he offer life? The question is, am I willing to walk through that door? Am I willing to place my trust in him? Am I willing to depend upon Jesus? You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.